My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 32 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. What a great few weeks of sport we've just had. Gold medals for Ireland in the Olympics. The GAA season reaching its climax. And the trail and mountain running season in full swing both at home and abroad. And this week we've got a special guest on the show that knows a thing or two about the mindset of being a champion and achieving those sporting goals no matter what the level. Everybody, get your running gear on. Let's go. Hey everybody, how's it going? We have a real treat in store this week as our special guest is Noel Brick. Noel is the co-author of The Genius of Athletes, What World-Class Competitors Know That Can Change Your Life. Noel is from Kerry originally and is currently working as a lecturer and researcher in sport and exercise psychology in the University of Ulster, as well as a whole host of marathon, trail races and ultra races behind them as well. So a really, really great guy to have on the show and more on Noel's TV coming up later on. Before we get to Rennie Borg in just a couple of seconds as well on the different types of training philosophies that can be applied to your training as well as a brief chat on our views on whether trail running, mountain running can become an Olympic sport or not. A big thank you as always to our Patreons who have been there all year and are continuing to, sp- to support the show and welcome to our new Patreon Paul Kenny. Paul thanks for coming on board and to all of our listeners, all of our Patreons, I really Really hope that your training is going well as there are some massive races coming up in the next couple of weeks both in Ireland and abroad the fantastic UTMB in Chamonix of course to name just one if you would like to join us on Patreon like Paul did and lots of other great supporters of the show all during the year do check us out on patreon.com trail running Ireland podcast and your help will help keep us going for the whole year so guys let's get cracking on with the show now please note that we we did record these interviews the weekend of the Olympic Marathon, so we're about a week behind or so getting them out, but hopefully they are worth waiting for. And as always, let's kick off the show with our coaching guru, Rene Borg. Rene Borg from Running Coach Ireland. Rene, great to have you back on the show. And I'm sure like everybody else, you're enjoying the Olympic experience at the moment. Yeah, we are trying to take in, you know, my wife and I are both huge fans. So we're trying to take in as much as we can, <laughs> watch as many disciplines, especially the stranger sports. Um, you know, and it's it's actually, you know, it's no, no bragging here, but it's been a decent Olympics for the Dane zone. So that's been quite, quite a lot of fun to watch so far. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Have you got any medals so far? Yeah, I think there's five or six now, um, you know, in kind of various disciplines from sailing to shooting to track cycling and okay. and, and still think badminton, you know, things like that. The, the Danes are not great at track and field. They had a few competing, but um, but we I think it's been a long time since there was a, a medal in track and field for Denmark. I think it was actually Wilson Keepcater, if you're no, actually, no, I'm wrong. There was Sarah Slot, the 400 meter hurdler. Uh, I think she took a medal last time, but it's quite, I think we are very team sports oriented country. Uh, so we don't have the track and field tradition that Ireland would have, for instance. 
Yeah, I wouldn't it be great for any one day if we were talking about trail running and mountain running as an Olympic sport. And I know one of the big trail races in Spain, Peña Galosa Trails, they have actually started a big change.org campaign to try and get um, mountain running into the Olympics. I'm not too sure, Rene, how successful they'll be. I think if it was ever going to happen, it might have happened for Paris 2024 because of the massive trail running tradition in France over the last 20 years or so, especially with UTMB and the influence that all the big trail running organizers from France France could potentially have in the IOC, but if it haven't, is it, if it hasn't happened for Paris, I'm a bit fearful for when it might happen. But uh, fingers crossed, fingers crossed, we might get there. Well, we know it's it's, it's tough, you know, to get in, um, especially you know when you see mountain biking there and when you see like hundreds of disciplines, list, literally for swimming. You know, it would be nice to have a few more running disciplines, and it seems like mountain or trail running should be easy to get in there um but there's so many factors that they look at especially what is a spectator interest and and you can see how rough it is you know some sports have only been there for two or three olympics like the i think it's like the kayaking and the sprint kayaking and they're already gone you know they won't be there uh, the next time and there's there's really old traditional disciplines that have been there since 1896 like you greco-roman wrestling that's gone as well you know so it's um it's rough to get into the Olympics uh, for a sport. Yeah, and of course, TV coverage is such a big, important factor as well. But I'll tell you, Renny, one of the things that I've seen over the last couple of years in Spain and in France especially is the quality of live streaming that they're doing in trail and mountain races. And even there last weekend, Renny, I was working on a race in a small Canarian village called Terror on Saturday. And they had five hours of live streaming and it was really top quality stuff. They had a couple of guys out on the course and um, running up and down the mountains, tracking the top male, the top, top female athletes. I was down at the finish line interviewing the winners as they came through. We had two colleagues in a studio just off behind the finish line as well, who were keeping everybody informed of what was going on over the couple of hours. And this was just a local race in Spain. Now, if you go to some of the bigger races like a UTMB where they literally have a big massive RTE-like studio covering it, it's actually very attractive for a TV audience. So, you know, I know we're saying that, you know, we could have had it in Paris and we don't, which is an awful pity, but the more and more races that invest in things like streaming, etc., that will help as well. Yeah, I think maybe we could just spend a few minutes talking about that, Owen, because we, you know, our main topic today is a little bit shorter than usual. Um, I, I've been thinking that since I first started going to, you know, the Snowden International Mountain Race over in Wales, because they all, always had, you know, for probably over a decade, very good coverage from the local Welsh channel S4C. Um, and I watched some of the videos or DVDs that were being produced after that, you know, and, and they were an excellent watch. You know, there was helicopter footage, which probably would be drone footage today, but there was helicopter yeah. footage of the whole path. And there was some great editing and it was kind of exciting to follow the race develop. And I think with the, the computer technology that's available today, you know, to show little details of, you know, what's the distance between runners? What speed are they moving at? Um, you know, to call out the names uh, on a graphic, you know, and to show graphics of where are they on the mountain, you know, the way they do in the Tour de France. I think if if trail running and mountain running could could add it, could become a little bit more commercial, even though I know it's it's a dirty word. And as you say, event organizers 
could find a financial model that would allow them um, to do more footage and, and create, you know, that expertise, then you have a much, because the sport is a package as far as the IOC is concerned, as you say, you know, it's a commercial product. Can they sell this? Will it be entertaining? Uh, so there, that's probably where the sport has to develop if it ever wants to make it, you know, to, to the biggest sporting event that's out there, which is the Olympics. Um, you know, I, if I had any skills in that area, I would love to contribute to it. I don't, but I hope maybe there's someone who, out there listening who is into video editing or TV production, anything like that, and has a graph for mountain running who is thinking in these terms, you know, and maybe one day we will see a mountain running or a trail running kind of online TV channel, you know, that does widespread coverage of the big events and maybe even travels around, you know, stuff like that. That would be, to my mind, brilliant, you know, and I'd obviously watch it and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would watch it. Um, but, you know, where would it go from there? Who knows? But in, in many ways, I think it would be more exciting to watch that than people running around a track, you know, and that's not to take anything at all away from the track running, which is great. But it seems to me there's more potential for drama on a trail course. Uh, and I've seen the mountain bike races at the Olympics, and I think they're quite interesting to follow, you know, so if it can be put together for a mountain bike race in the forest, with all these, you know, climbs and twists and turns, why not for a hill running course? You know, I, I just can't see why it can't be done. Yeah, and of course, when you have all that coverage, Remy, as well, and I'd say to the listeners, just to go to YouTube, go to Google, type in the names of some of the big Spanish races, for example, Zegama, and um, Reventon Trail in La Palma, Transgran Canaria, and then, of course, UTMB. Google or YouTube any of those races, and you'll see these spectacular finish lines with big LCD screens over the finish line where the runners are crossing, with explosions going off, fireworks, live music bands playing. And of course, what all that brings in as well is it brings in sponsorship um, and that brings in money for the athletes. So say, for example, in Spain, I mean, they were the world champions on three occasions in trail running because there's actually quite a lot of professional athletes in Spain who are getting paid to run, paid to train because of the sponsorship that's in the sport. And wouldn't that be great in Ireland, for example, if we had some brands really getting in, investing in races, and of course, investing in athletes. So we have more athletes like the, like the likes of Zach Hanna, Sarah McCormack, who are doing so well internationally at the moment, but wouldn't it be great if we had a team of four Zach Hannas or a team of four Sarah McCormicks? And who knows, if the Olympics ever did come around, um, we might be able to do a rowers on it. Yeah, so, you know, it would be nice to see, um, you know, as we've had the Wimra Grand Prix where there's been money and you, you have the, the Golden Trail Series and things like that now where, where there is money to be won. Actually, I think the Golden Trail Series, it's fairly significant. Um, yeah. And I know the, the, the Brits tried for a while with this thing they call the British Open Mountain Running Championship, which I don't know if they still do it, but it was quite an interesting idea. I think the two trial races that they held and three other mountain races were nominated as this championship. And there was a big sponsor purse uh, and you basically got money based on how many points you got. And you got points based on placement. You had to do at least three. And that was an attempt to try and kind of create a semi-professional um, mountain running series so that it was more worthwhile, the best athletes going there while the races were still open to everybody. I, I don't know how that initiative went. Uh, I have a feeling it probably happened a bit too early. But, you know, with more sponsor coverage um, and more media coverage, maybe those sorts of series would become a real option 
um, and then it could drive the sport forward, you know, and I know a lot of people listening might feel this, you know, they would be resistant to this idea because I do know there are many who think, you know, money rots sport. Um, but I think we've probably moved beyond that now. I think the, the, we, we, we can't go back, I think, to, to the amateur era and the benefits that that had. Um, it's just yeah. the world has moved on too far in my mind. It's a, it's, a, it's a debate maybe, Renny, for another day, but it was sickening during the week when, you know, I'm watching all these wonderful Olympic athletes from all countries across all different disciplines training so hard every Olympic cycle and probably earning, you know, basic grants from their local governments, like from, like in Ireland, it might be ranged from five grand to what is it, 32 or 35 grand for some of the top, top Olympic medal hopefuls and then you look at say reports in the back pages of the sports paper about Jack Grealish going to Manchester City for 100 million and our top Olympic guys are you know lucky if they scrape 30 or 40 grand a year never mind uh, talking about 100 million um, signing fee and whatever weekly ridiculous wages he, he, he's going to get um, it's, it's a tale of two worlds Rene and it's frustrating if you think about it but listen let, let's, let's get back to what we wanted to talk about today which is doing well in our races doing well from a training point of view and today Rennie you wanted to touch on training philosophies and making sure that you find the right system of training for you as an athlete for you as a person for you as an athlete yes because we talk so much about you know physical training and and all the mechanics and aspects of that and the details but you often forget that the 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 results that you get in life um, comes from the actions that you take, right? And I think everyone understands that, you know, so whatever actions you eventually choose, that that's going to define the outcomes in every aspect of life and in training as well. Um, and your actions, like, wh wh why do you take the actions you do? Well, you take certain actions because you have a certain perception about the world that's based on your beliefs, right? And your beliefs are formed in many ways. So I won't really go there, but obviously your beliefs come to be over a long period of time about everything, you know, so you have different beliefs about everything in the world. I'm not talking about religious belief here, but that's obviously one, right? But um, you might believe certain things about nutrition. You might believe certain things about what is a good, healthy environment around me. You might have certain beliefs around what I, what's a good habit to have. Um, you might have certain beliefs about what, cons uh, what you consider um, the good life, uh, things like that. And all of that comes together. Uh, and, and for training, the way we tend to join beliefs together is we, we call it a training philosophy, you know, which is this kind of very academic sounding word, but you find it in every single running book nearly uh, that's out there. So I just thought, well, maybe let's just explain why and, and explain how people can use this. Uh, because it's the same when you go and look for coaches either to train you or when you're you know reading up on different coaches one of the first things you tend to see is what is the training philosophy of Renato Canova Arthur Lydiat Percy Serdi uh, and all these other coaches brother column and um, and what is it then well the training philosophy is is obviously the approach that they take so it's what they believe is the necessary process to achieve success and it often rests on certain assumptions that these coaches have. So how is that useful for you? Well, first of all, um, you know, you, you want to pick coaches that have a philosophy that you resonate with, you know, and when I say resonate, it means that 
you have to connect with it on some emotional level. Because if you read a philosophy and you say that is a load of, you know, CRAP, um, then it probably won't work for you, right? Because what that implies is that your beliefs and this coach's beliefs are very divergent. So maybe that raises some interesting questions for you, right? Maybe if he's very successful, maybe you should start questioning your own beliefs because if he's successful and, you know, you're just, let's say, an average Joe, and maybe the way you've been training needs revision. But that's what I find interesting about reading about different training philosophies myself. It is you are looking at different perspectives on how a sport should be approached. And you are then trying to see, well, which one do I think could be closest to my path to success and eventually over time as you get exposure to more and more you craft your own and a lot of people are not even aware they're doing this you know they because they've never written it down or thought about it um but I, I, the good example is you if you're not in runnings often the philosophy is no pain no gain right that was the philosophy in so many sports especially in the 80s if that's your basic philosophy there's certain decisions you'll make, right? You'll make certain decisions like I've, I've really beat up this morning, but I don't care. I'm going to go into the gym and I'm going to hammer the body because no pain, no yeah. gain, you know, only losers back out just because of some pain. And that's going to lead to certain results, you know, and, and you need them to reflect on if you're not performing, is it because my no pain, no gain attitude is wrong, perhaps, you know, could that be it? Um, and then you start revising your beliefs from there. Yeah. And it's hard, Rene, isn't it? Because when somebody decides that they want to pursue an amateur career in running, if you like, you know, dedicate their time and energy to be the best mountain runner, best trail runner, best road runner that they can be, you know, they'll invariably start to do research, buy some books, maybe look up YouTube, Google search. And there's just so many coaches out there. There's so many videos and these days influencers, if you like, out there that are telling you how to train, how to run. And it can be just this bombardment of, of information. And it can be slightly overwhelming as well. And, you know, you're getting messages of, you know, running hard or you're getting messages of, oh, no, 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 you need to run easy. So, I mean, is there any tips or any, any advice that you can give how to sieve through all that information? And a lot of it is probably, you know, incorrect, where it's hard to find the right information, the good inf information that's especially suitable for you. Because as we've spoken about many times in the podcast, Getting training right, it really is such a personalized approach that what works for one person won't work for everybody. And that can be the danger of, say, following a, a Jack Daniels um, approach or a Frank Orwell ap approach. Now, these are more track guys. I know more than trail running, but both with different philosophies. And which one do you choose? It's hard. Yeah, but actually, you know, most of those approaches can work for people um, because most of those coaches that we know by name, they, they wouldn't have gotten to the point where we actually read their books if they didn't have a method that was, you know, in some way successful, you know, and that's probably not being generous enough. You know, most of those coaches are yeah. very successful. And it's just that maybe some of them are slightly closer to the truth, you know, if there is such a thing uh, than others. And But what actually helps is to take a step back from reading the method as in, you know, oh, these workouts, here's a sample training schedule and read, go back to the first few chapters and, and, and read again the training philosophy because most of these coaches, 
have it there. Um, and it's when you read the training philosophy that you can actually unlock the program for yourself. Because let's take um, Arthur Lydiard as an example. You know, so Arthur Lydiard really was all about developing the right uh, attributes at the right time. Uh, you know, and understanding what what time it took to develop those, rather than, for instance, a philosophy of let's try and develop everything all the time. So a lot of people just got straight into the deep end, like oh, hundred mile weeks, lots of mileage, but they didn't take that step back and say, no, wait a minute, the training philosophy is about consistent volume, and especially putting in place a foundation very early in the training process, and to train, not strain. So if you didn't read the rest of the book you could already form a training plan based on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's this often skipping past what the what is the general principle, because it's the general training philosophy that allows you to take the examples of a, a coach or the examples of, let's say, if you look at an elite runner's schedule and you like it, you think that's for me, you know, I, I want to train like that. If you go back and say, well, what principles are these based on? That then shows you, well, how can I take this example for this person who's very different from me and do, and do the same principles, but for my situation? You know, so I think that's where it, um, that's why it's actually so important. Yeah. And is there any, say, common um, trend at the moment, Rene, where, say, if we go back to road running back in the 80s and early 90s in Ireland, where it was all about doing 100 miles weeks when you were getting ready for a marathon. Um, and we'll try and maybe keep it specific to mountain running and trail running if we can, but I think it's OK to talk in general as well. Like, is there any popular trends that are in the coaching world at the moment that are fashionable at the moment that seem to be working well. I know we speak a lot about heart rate based training where maybe that wasn't done as much before, but we use a lot of it now at Running Coach Ireland. What are you seeing in, in the research that you're reading? Because I know that you, you're, you're very academic. You love reading about what the latest trends and what the latest research most importantly shows because you're an evidence based type of guy. Yeah, well, what you described there is that, you know, there's um, certain training philosophy uh, types dominate at different times. And it even tends to go is in a cyclical way, strangely, right? So we, we had a, a kind of a, a trend for high-intensity interval training in the early 50s, and that then was replaced by high-volume steady-state training in the 60s to 70s. And then it was kind of, it, it gave way again to lower mileage higher intensity type training philosophies. And now we have seen, and probably in the last, maybe already 10 years, a return of high mileage training, you know, and high volume training. But but if anything, I think it is getting, there is a trend towards individualization right now. Uh, and you see that in multiple ways. You see it in, in the books when you read them. You know, they, they, the coaches who write books today seem to be slightly more aware that you really need to make the point um, that you know that these are these programs here and these principles we're showing, you need to adjust them, you know, so that they fit exactly you. And then there's all the technology that has come in, uh, which is you know outside of running, we call it is I think they call it self quantification, right? Which is can be it can go way over the top if you ask me, but at a health level, it means that we are able to measure 
uh, so many individual metrics about an athlete, you know, such as you do with power meters, uh, such as you do with foot pods that look at your biomechanics and also just the things that your watches can tell you now, you know, as you say, heart rate is an old one. Uh, that's a trend that's still going strong. Um, but there's so much more it captures now. And um, I think that that is a picture of a trend that says, well, for optimal results, it's all about understanding your unique reaction day to day to training. So I think that's where things are going at the moment. And then, of course, because we live in a, a technophile society, um, there is a trend towards algorithmic training. You know, they're trying to replace us basically. Or, you know, so there is this both watches and various platforms are now trying to pitch people programs that automatically adjust your training based on what your data you input you know so basically your training plan is written for you by an algorithm and i would not be surprised you know i don't you know i'd like to think they cannot really replace us fully because you would never have the interaction right the human to human oh absolutely um, not um, it, the algorithms won't be able to tell you if you're out drinking a few extra glasses of wine the night before or if the baby woke you up at four o'clock in the middle of the night which caused your heart rate resting heart rate to spike um so yeah they might be helpful but definitely not the end solution and just to give you a little anecdote Rene, on the different training philosophies that are out there and that exist. Um, the listeners might know that I teach English to Pablo Villa, um, who won the TDS and the UTMB in 2019. And he's one of the favorites for the UTMB now in a couple of weeks time. And he's a professional Adidas trail runner. And we were speaking earlier on about the brands investing in the sport. Well, Adidas have actually invested in a very strong ultra trail running team for this year and the next couple of years. And they brought their full squad of athletes to Chamonix for three weeks. And I was asking Pablo there last week about his training. And it's funny, he was saying that he was doing totally different type of sessions, hard sessions, to each of the other Adidas professional athletes. And um, there was a guy from the UK there, there was a guy from Germany, and I think one other nationality that he mentioned that I can't remember now, but I think there was four of the top pro guys there. And each one of them really had a very, very different approach to training. Pablo was still doing some fast stuff combined with the long training sessions and the long days, the, you know, the multi-hours, five, six-hour runs. But he was also doing short, fast stuff as well, where, say, the, the British runner who was there, he was doing all long stuff. So even at a professional level, Nobody has still nobody has decided that this philosophy is the be end be be all be, is is the only philosophy that will work well. That there's still lots of different philosophies out there. Yeah, and I think that's why it's important to to you know as some someone told me a long time ago, if you study one religion, you should study them all. Um, you know, and I kind <laughs> of agree. Um, and we certainly did. We back in school, I thought it was very helpful. But you know, yeah, look at different ones, especially if you don't feel like you're reaching your current potential right now, or if you feel that maybe um, it's time for a change. You've gone a bit stale. Um, you know, ha have a look around and see if there's a different way of looking at training and just try it you know because that's there's really if you feel like you have kind of gone as far as you can on your current approach uh, what do you have to lose by trying a different approach you know because a lot of the time when we get to that plateau uh, we stick to do because that and it feels comfortable but as they say you know if you 
if you keep doing the same thing, um, then you'll probably keep getting the same results as well. Yeah. Well, listen, Renny, on that note, we'll call it a day and it's an enjoy the weekend. By the time we get the podcast out, we'll either be getting ready to watch the Olympic marathon, which I'm sure will be spectacular as always, or just watching the, the results as they come in. And we wish the Irish guys well, of course. And we wish everybody well in their training because there's lots of big um, Irish trail running races coming up over the next couple of weeks. So we wish everybody well in their training. And if anybody wants to get in touch with Renny, they can do so on runningcoach.ie. Renny, until next time, and enjoy the marathon at the weekend all right i will do own take care time for our feature interview on our show this week and it's a real privilege to have noel brick co-author of the genius of athletes what world-class competitors know that can change your life when I heard Noel talk with his co-author of the book, Scott Douglas, the famous runner's world writer, on one of the big international trail running podcasts a couple of weeks ago, I said I have to try and get Noel onto our own show here. He spoke so well, so much in-depth knowledge. Noel is a chartered psychologist. He's a specialist in sports psychology. He has a PhD in attentional focus during endurance activity. He currently works as a lecturer and researcher in sport and exercise psychology at the Ulster University so no better man on the show to give us some great tips for the training and the racing season ahead everybody let's give a big warm welcome to Noel Brick Noel you're very welcome to Trail Running Ireland Noel a real privilege to have you on the show Owen um, it's brilliant to chat to you Um, thanks so much for the invitation and, and thanks for having me on today um, and I'm really looking forward to talking about my two big hobbies, psychology and running. So, so it couldn't be better. I know. I imagine the last two weeks for you, it must be like all your Christmases at once from a sports fan point of view. And then from a professional point of view with the Olympics going on, all these fascinating performances. We have the, the physical element of these wonderful performances. But then the sports psychology, the last two weeks must be incredible for you. I mean, are you sitting with your popcorn in one hand and then your, your notepad and pen in the other, jotting down what you're observing? Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose it's kind of one thing I always look forward to when it comes to any big event, whether it's a, an Olympics or a World Championships or, you know, even other sports, whether it's a Euros or whatever it might be. Um, one is just, you know, the pure sports fan, you know, you just, I love watching um, the athletics, but even in the Olympics, you just get an insight into so many sports that maybe sometimes you only see once every four years. Um, but what I've really, really enjoyed, uh, and actually, which I think has been an excellent kind of uh, element of, of the Olympics this year has been some of the insights and some of the, the uh, chat and discussion about um, the psychology, the, so, so for example, the, the mental health uh, side of sport and the impact of uh, mental health issues in athletes. We, you know, one of the big stories, I suppose, from the Olympics was Simone Biles. And what, what I think has been really helpful about that is it's just helped um, to have a bit of a discussion about some of the impact on athletes' mental health that we don't maybe see covered as much, that, that isn't spoken about as much, but actually, which, which is hugely important. Um, 
when it comes to the psychological uh, side of sport. Uh, and then the other thing, you know, which, which I always enjoy um, when it comes to any big event like this as well, is I, I always tune into athlete interviews um, after they've performed. And, and sometimes, you know, if you get a really good interviewer who knows maybe the right questions to ask or who nudges the interview in the right way, you get a little bit of an insight into the their psychological preparation. Maybe for me, you know, what I'm really interested in in my research and my work is, what athletes think about, what they focus on during um, competition, during races, even during training. And so what I've really, again, enjoyed about some of these Olympics is at least talking about, you know, some of the things that they focus on, maybe working with a psychologist either, you know, during the event, during the Olympics or or as part of their preparation and how that work on, on the mental side of their game has helped their, their performance overall. There was, there was one interview I, I watched so at the time of recording this, this interview was yesterday and it was um, the women's pole vault and, and the, the British lady who finished second in that. Um, she was talking about, so she had, I think, finished, she had a fourth, she had a fifth, she had a, fifth, a sixth in previous events. Um, but she was talking a little bit, this is Holly Bradshaw, and she was talking a little bit about um, she'd worked with a sports psychologist over the, the previous year, you know, in preparation for these Olympics and, and how that worked on the mental side of her sport just helps her deal with events and, and pressures during the season, but also during the Olympic contest itself. So, so that's been fascinating for me on that. So, so that's the kind of stuff that I kind of tune into um, yeah, and that yeah. I find really I, interesting. I say, were you very impressed with the rowers, for example, Gary O'Donovan? Uh, yeah. Um, and it was at Finton. I mean, yeah. they, they seem to be just so strong and so focused on the day. And they didn't let any of the pressure of an Olympic gold medal get to them where we saw other rowers, they were affected, but the guys were brilliant. Yeah, so certainly in the interviews, um, I mean, there's two very contrasting personalities and two very you know different levels of experience there between the two guys in that boat and I think Gary just you know he's, he's so experienced and he just comes across you know I obviously don't know him personally but he just comes across as this really calming influence um, and I think coming you know on the back of the previous Olympics as well where he'd won a silver just that confidence of knowing that you can perform on the big occasion I mean, that's something that we maybe sort of might talk about later on is, is you know, kind of building confidence and sources of confidence. But, but that sort of confidence of knowing you can perform on the big occasion, you know, is so important, I guess, when it comes to being able to handle the pressure. You know, they went into that race as, as probably the overwhelming favourites, but they just seemed to perform. They just seemed to execute. They had a game plan. Even in that race, I think when you break that race down into the, the 500 metre segments, the, I think it was the German uh, team went out really strong at the start yeah. but they didn't panic they just stuck to their game plan they they were a little bit behind but they just executed their game plan and actually if you if you look at the breakdown of times for their 500 meter segments it was almost predictable you could almost kind of see just a nice even split and then obviously upping out at the end and and that's you know that's experience that's focusing on you know your processes trusting your processes uh, and knowing i guess the confidence bit is knowing that by doing that, that ultimately you'll be able to achieve the, the goal that you want to achieve. Yeah, and you must have been fascinated then, say, on the opposite end, where, say, with the US gymnast, um, gymnastic um, athlete, Simone Biles, mm -hmm. who maybe had similar experience to Gary, was one of the best in the world, has won everything. But just this time around, it was her mental game that let her down and just the pressure did get to her. Now, I know I think in gymnastics, it can actually be quite common with experienced athletes that it gets to a stage where 
a little bit of fear comes in because they're doing so much, so many twists and turns and their sport is so dangerous that it does eventually catch up on them. Did you have any professional opinion on what you saw happening with Simone? Yeah, I, I suppose first of all, it would be it would be um, pretty dangerous of me to give a professional opinion without without knowing the athlete. But so so purely, you know, this is based on kind of some of the things that we've all watched over the last couple of weeks. Um, and certainly, I mean, you know, even in the lead up to the games, um, Simone had tweeted about um, feeling the pressure. I think the weight of the world on her shoulders was was one of the lines in, in a tweet before the games and the lead up to the games. Um, what I thought, I suppose, what I really took from that, you know, without really knowing what was happening um, on the inside in terms of the camp and, and also how she was maybe feeling, we, we saw some clips come out during the the Olympics of her uh, in training and preparation, where actually she she kept missing, you know, grabs on the high bars and stuff like that. And I think part of the the conversation, part of what came out was that. Um, and this seems to be a phenomenon that a lot of gymnasts would relate to, was kind of just losing her position in the air as she was doing tumbles and turns on, on the high bars or whatever uh, piece of equipment it might be, uh, the the uh, vault, all those kind of things. Um, but what I really took from that was, you know, a couple of things. One was, um, I suppose, the, the bravery of an athlete just to come out and say, look, you know, I'm not feeling at my best, you know, mentally, I don't feel like I'm in a position to be able to perform to my best. And so I'm stepping back for, for the sake of my mental health. Now that's, I think if we were to go back, I was going to say 10 years, but maybe not even 10 years, I would almost suggest that athletes would be afraid to say something like that, or there would be a stigma associated with, with an athlete coming out um, with, with a statement like that. Uh, and I think potentially the reaction could have been very, very different, but but the reaction this time was of uh, understanding of the pressures of, on an athlete um, and actually just praise for, for an athlete, not, not, not by everybody, and, uh, but I think rightly praised by the majority of people for an athlete who uh, felt, uh, I suppose, confident enough, brave enough uh, and open enough to come out and say those things that I'm not at my best and for the sake of my mental health, I, I'm not going to perform. The, the other big thing I kind of took from that on, which I think is a really interesting you know, insight that I've taken, which I don't think has been really discussed, is that there's a lot of trust for an athlete with her coaches, with her teammates, just generally within that camp to be able to to say that, to be able to say that, you know, guys, I, I'm pulling out of, of this big, big competition for all of us because of uh, mental health concerns and for the sake of my mental health. Uh, and certainly, again, what we saw, and I, and I don't know the insights of, of what happened behind the scenes, but certainly what we saw openly was a huge amount of support within the US camp uh, for Simone Biles. And again, that's very, very, very important for mental health uh, and for a lot of outcomes, performance outcomes, but also mental health outcomes, that there's a high level of support for athletes when, when they're undergoing a high level of challenge. Um, and as we saw, ultimately, um, Simone came back, competed in the um, uh, the uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the it event. Course, was it? Um, um, it was the, yeah, the beam. I, I saw it the other the day. Like the beam, yeah. yeah she, she, great, got a great bronze, I think, wasn't she, it? She she got a bronze, yeah, so well. yeah, which was fantastic, you know. Um, so so that was you know in terms of a psychologically informed environment, the the high level support that she received from her environment, I thought that was excellent, and I thought that was, again, a really good insight into in terms of um, the psychological nature and, and support provided for athletes within that camp. 
Yeah, and maybe what helped Simone as well was, of course, the tennis player, Naomi Osaka, who had similar issues in the tennis world and who pulled out of the Grand Slams. And maybe that helped um, Simone a little bit as well because people saw what happened Naomi and this was a similar superstar at a similar level with the same thing um, and, and it does seem like we're in a real watershed moment doesn't it and very different as you said when you started maybe 20 years ago and even this morning but when I was on my run note and thinking about our chat today and I was thinking will we actually get to the stage where the sports psychologist becomes just as important as the sports physiotherapist, where just like we go for our, our rub down maybe once every two weeks or once every three weeks, that, you know, at, at all levels of sport, we'll be going for our, our checking with our sports psychologist as well. Um, I, I think what it really highlights is just how important um, sports psychology is, not just from a performance perspective, but also the mental health um, perspective as well. Um, and I suppose, you know, a couple of things I would say to that. First of all, I would say that absolutely, yes, I think there's, there's, it's important that the role of sports psychology um, and the importance of mental health for athletes is, is recognized. Um, and these conversations only help and, and, and increase that awareness. Um, and I suppose I would kind of relate the role of a sports psychologist maybe more to, to a strength and conditioning uh, type role than, than a physiotherapist type role. The, the, and the reason I would say that is, you know, normally we might go to a physiotherapist if we perceive we have an injury or if there's some sort of issue there. But, but sports psychology isn't just about you know, having uh, an issue or having something that we, we're struggling with. From a positive sports psychology perspective, it's also about doing things that increase our performance, even though we might otherwise be performing really, really well. And a lot of the strategies and a lot of the tools and even the environment that we create around athletes it's not just about dealing with issues, but it's also about, um, from a positive perspective, again, enhancing performance or or making that environment the most supportive environment that we possibly can. Uh, and so the, the, the kind of comparison there with a strength and conditioning um, specialist is that, you know, they don't maybe just focus on issues that athletes have, you know, in terms of prehab, it's, it's making athletes stronger, more robust, more resilient. Uh, and in terms of psychology, we can maybe look at it the same way as well. Yeah, well, you've had the privilege over the last couple of years, Noel, of talking to some of Ireland's best athletes, the world's best athletes in research for your fantastic book, The Genius of Athletes, What World-Class Competitors Know That Can Change Your Life, that you co-wrote with Scott Douglas, the great um, Runner's World writer as well. Maybe, Noel, to talk about the book for a while and, and maybe where the idea of the book came from and how you went about writing it and who you got to speak to and what type of questions you were asking them it's a fascinating book it's really really wonderful and it's something that we can use not only in our sporting life but in all aspects of life as well um, and, and thank you, Owen, for those really kind comments. Really appreciate that. Um, I, sp I suppose just to give a little bit of background to, to myself and then how, how the book started. So um, my research, um, I'm, I'm a lecturer and researcher based at Ulster University. I'm, I'm from Kerry, you mightn't guess it from the accent, but I'm from Kerry originally. Um, but I've, I've been living and, and working in Ulster for quite a while now. Um, but basically, my, my background as a researcher is all about the psychology of endurance activities and, and running specifically. So my research has looked at the kind of mental strategies that athletes use uh, and that runners use to help them perform at their best. Um, so it might be things like what they say to themselves, what they think about, what they focus on. 
And very often this is kind of, you know, strategies they use during competition, during training to get the very, very most out of their performance. Um, so I've published kind of a lot of research on that, both kind of interview-based research where, uh, for example, one study I interviewed a lot of Olympic World Championship level, Euro European level athletes, um, kind of the, asking them the very simple question and then digging into their strategies from there. And the simple question very often is, you know, what do you think about it? It's kind of, kind of the question a lot of us get asked when we do like long <laughs> ultra marathons and trail runs and stuff like that is like, what do you think about during all that time? Well, that, well that's yeah. the sort of stuff I ask these athletes. And then we sort of dug into how they learn those strategies, how they know what to, strategy to use, depending on the context that they're in or the race situation that they're in or whatever. And so I published a lot of research on that. And through those publications, um, I, I sort of got to know Scott Douglas um, as a writer with Runner's World from just some email exchanges. So Scott would have written a few articles about some of those studies uh, and Scott would have emailed just for a little bit more insight in, into the research behind the study, what we did. He'd maybe ask some specific questions about maybe what the results of a study might mean for people in their everyday running activities, how they might use different strategies. Uh, and through one of those email exchanges, um, kind of serendipitously we we kind of were both thinking something very similar at the same time which ultimately was the book that we wrote so scott in one of the emails basically just asked the question have you ever thought about a book you know about this kind of stuff about the strategies that athletes use and and how it helps their performance and so we said you know and, and had been and so we sort of exchanged some emails back and forth about what this book might look like, what sort of stuff we might want to talk about in the book. Um, and we kind of broadened it out, not just to strategies that athletes use during performance, but how a lot of these strategies can help us in our everyday life as well. Um, so, for example, how an athlete might speak to themselves during really tough moments in competition, you know, how we might talk to ourselves to get up a hill or in that final stages of a race where it's really hurting and we're really struggling how we might use a strategy like that in everyday life as well when we're going through challenging moments. So so really that was kind of the the, the concept and, uh, of the book. Um, and so what we did in the book was we wrote about some of the most common strategies that athletes use, kind of broken into, you know, if I was to just very, very quickly go through almost a blow by blow account of, of some of the early chapters. Um, the first chapter, we kind of looked at some some research on not just the goals that athletes set, but how um, they strive to achieve those goals and the different strategies they use to help them achieve their goals. And again, right the way through, we talk about how these can relate to everyday life as well. Um, chapter two is on managing emotions. So again, you know, we've just been talking about the Olympics there and, you know, a lot of high level performances about managing anxiety and managing expectations, managing unexpected things that may maybe happen during performance. So again, we spoke about some of the, the strategies that athletes might use to, to manage their emotions. And again, obviously how those can relate to everyday life as well. Um, chapter three, I won't go through all chapters, but I will just go yeah. through the first five. Um, chapter three is a little bit about then the research that I've just spoken about on, on what people think about, what people focus on and how those different strategies can be useful. And then probably, you know, the, the chapter with the biggest evidence base, certainly for running research. Um, chapter four is all about self-talk, those things that we say to ourselves uh, to manage maybe those difficult moments or, or to build our confidence. Uh, and that leads in then to chapter five, which, which is all about building confidence. 
And then, sorry, sorry, but the last part of your question, I know I'm rambling maybe a little bit, but the, the last part of your question then about some of the athletes that we interviewed. So the, the remaining part of the book then sort of tells some stories about some of the athletes that we we interviewed for this book, uh, specifically for this book, in addition to some that we interviewed for the research that I do. And those include athletes like um, Meb Keflagezi, a, a, a US marathon runner, um, who he's won Boston, um, various other races as well, competed in the Olympics. Um, and we spoke about a few other athletes as well. Steve Holman, who is a U.S. miler, and kind of some of the stories that we tell about some of these athletes is is again the strategies that they use during competition, how they learned about the psycho- psychological side of preparation and, and the strategies they use, but also how some of these athletes who've maybe since retired took what they learned as an athlete uh, and helped them in different careers post um, their athletic career as well, and how some of these strategies helped them in those areas of their life as well. Yeah, and I suppose maybe just to get an overview, if we can know, like, what were the the key strategies, the the headliners, if you like, that all these people had in common? Is it things like consistency? Is it things like self-belief and consistent positive affirmations? What were the key things that were consistently um, being told to you by by all of these top athletes? Yeah, I, th- I think it really, de- I suppose, depends on the context and, and depends on the individual athlete. Um, if I was kind of to talk about, I suppose, you know, or answer that question from kind of two perspectives, one would be some of the, stra- the strategies that athletes commonly use and probably the one that, that sort of comes out strongest is, is athletes self-talk um, and some of the things that they say to themselves in in, in challenging and difficult moments. Uh, and I suppose the second angle on that then is, is some of the strategies that we've got really strong evidence base for. And again, when it comes to running specifically, self-talk is probably the one where there's the strongest evidence base. Um, so by self-talk, first of all, what I mean is, is those kind of things that we deliberately very sometimes very intentionally say to ourselves uh, for a whole host of different reasons. It could be to, to manage effort. It could be to build our belief in a moment where we might be, be doubting ourselves. Um, and some of the things that we say, it can be very, very simple things. You know, if it's, if it's motivational self-talk, it can be things like very simply keep going or, you know, I can get through this. Um, this is tough now, but I can push on or I can finish this, you know, whatever it might be. Some of us have maybe very individual and very specific mantras that we might use. Um, but what the evidence base kind of shows is, is that when we say these things to ourselves, that th- that simple sort of change in, in our narrative and our self-talk and the story that we say, we say to ourselves can have a really big impact on our performance. So some of the research has shown that by taking people through, a, you know, a very short, sometimes like a two-week self-talk training intervention where uh, at the start of those two weeks, athletes might go or individuals might undergo um, the first part of the intervention. And that could be a very simple kind of chat about, you know, during difficult moments, what do you say to yourself? What, what sort of thoughts do you have? Uh, and initially people might say things like, you know, if I'm going up a hill, I say things to myself, oh, this is horrible. This is really hard. I don't think I'm going to get to the top. And, and we know those kind of thoughts and those kind of things we say to ourselves can impact on our pace. We, we maybe slow down. We kind of give into the effort a little bit. Uh, and so kind of the, the first phase is where we, build up maybe a range of different things that individuals can say to themselves during those kind of moments. And again, that can be just simple things like one step at a time, or I can do this, keep going, keep pushing, 
you'll get to the top soon. My, one of my favorite kind of mantras for every hill that, that I'm running on is every uphill is a downhill. And, and that's kind of my focus when, when I, I'm really struggling going up that hill. It's like every hill, right. uphill is downhill. Every headwind has a tailwind. And, and those simple kind of statements can help to maintain our pace, help to maintain our performance. And what some of the research has shown then is that, you know, over a two-week period where people might take those statements develop them, personalize them, make them their own. So, it's like, you know, by make them their own, I would say things like, you know, pick the ones that work the best for you. And what some studies have shown is that when people come back to do a test after a two-week intervention, that generally they perform faster or they perform for longer at the same intensity than they did pre-intervention. So, so that is one strategy, very, very simple strategy that does take a little bit of training, but can be really beneficial for performance and has a very strong evidence base behind it. And on that one, Noel, is there any difference between saying saying the first person, as in, I can do this, I can get up this hill, or switching it to the third person and saying, Owen, you can do this. Owen, yeah. come on. Yeah. Is there yeah. Any it's a subtle difference, but maybe an important one. It's it's and it's a, a really interesting area that is is quite novel, um. But but actually, some research has shown that that does make a difference. Um, th- th- there's one big study. Well, one study in in recent years, I think it was published about maybe two or three years ago now, that uh, looked at that subtle change in in self talk. So exactly that, you know, it's not just taking the things like I can do this or I can push through this. It's taking those exact same statements, but either saying them to ourselves in the first person. Or as you say, in the third person, you can do this or own, you can push through this, keep going, Noel, you you got this, you can keep going. Um, And what they found in that study was, so basically it it wasn't a running study, it was a cycling study. So people had to do a 10K cycling time trial. uh, And they basically did two of them, uh, or sorry, three of them. They did a baseline where they kind of just, you know, went as hard as they could before any training. And then they did two more. And in one of those the self-talk statements were all in the first person. I can push through this. I can keep going. I can get through this tough bit. And it was the same statements, but in the third person in the other self, in the other 10K time trial. And those two were randomized. So there was no order effect. And what they found was that, um, first of all, there was no difference in how motivational they found the statements. So they found them equally motivational. But in the third person self-talk condition, they cycled about 2.2% faster than they did in the first person self-talk condition. That was about a 20, yeah, it was, you know, very subtle change in self-talk. Uh, and that equated for a, a, a 10 kilometer cycling time trial, it was about 23 seconds. Now, if you think about that, you know, if you kind of look at some of the time differences in the Olympics, you know, 23 seconds could be massive. It could be huge at that level, at any level really. Um, and, and the mechanism, the, re- the reason why this kind of works and what they suggest, and, and by the way, even though we've got one study on this in a, in a sporting context, it draws on a much bigger body of research in kind of a broader psychology um, domain, not, not specifically in sport, that has shown very similar things that when people speak to themselves, you know, if, if somebody's feeling really anxious, for example, this is one study, if somebody's feeling really anxious before a presentation, a talk that they have to give, an interview, something like that, uh, and they talk to themselves either in the first person, like I can get through this, or in the third person, you can do this. You, you've practiced, you've prepared, you can, you can do this. You know what you're talking about. That again, people are in this, in that particular study, study people were 
rated by observers as performing better in the interview context and in the presentation context when they spoke to themselves in the third person than in the first person. So, so there's actually quite a big um, evidence base behind this. And the reason for, for it is that when we speak to ourselves in the first person, it's kind of called a self-immersed perspective that we're we're immersed in the thing that we're experiencing, and if if you're a runner, that might be immersed in the the hurt, the effort, the agony, whatever word you want to use, the torture that you're experiencing at that time. Whereas in the third person, it kind of allows us mentally to separate ourselves from what we might be experiencing. It's called a self-distancing effect, that this effort is happening to you. It's almost like a coach would speak to you. Uh, and so that self-distance perspective allows us to view our situation in a different way and maybe sort of take in those statements like, you can do this maybe a little bit more from that perspective than we might when we we're in that self-immersed perspective. So oh, yeah, I'm trying on my pace run tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'll, I'll drop you a message and tell you how I get on because it seems so simple, doesn't it? And something that we can all apply straight away. Doesn't cost you anything. It's just a simple change in how you say something while you're going through, while you're pushing hard, when you're going up a hill. And it's a great little tip. And um, one other thing, though, that I was going to ask you on the book was doing the research. And um, you have Scott, who's from the US, yourself from Ireland. And I'm sure you interviewed a mix of different nationalities as well. And we see it at the Olympics now where say you have maybe the American athletes who seem that when they come out in front of the camera, saying the sprint events, they're full of confidence, they're, they're underlining the flag on their singlet, where maybe you have the, the European athletes, say like the Irish and the British athletes, who might come on screen a little bit more reserved. And there seems to be a different approach, a, a different, just a different culture in terms of the psychology involved, the confidence maybe involved, when you were doing your research, is that something that you come across, the differences in, in approach from a cultural point of view? And it might necessarily lead to different results, but you could maybe argue that, say, if you look at the American track and field athletes and from that part of the world, they always seem to be louder and more confident in that they can get a good result. And we've even maybe seen it a couple of times on the Irish commentary that sometimes the analysts do say, oh, we need to be we need to be more confident. We need to believe more in ourselves. Is that something that you've come across in your research? It, it's interesting, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot of the research you know, sometimes it is important to acknowledge cultural differences that um, I suppose there's a number of things I'm, I'm kind of thinking of as you're asking that, but that would be the first one, you know, sometimes it's important to acknowledge these cultural differences. And even going back to what we were talking about, you know, in terms of self-talk that uh, for some people, maybe of some cultures, you know, that those kind of self-talk statements might work a little bit better maybe than they do for, for others. Um, I think that, you know, what, what's quite interesting as well, you know, and this, this is actually something I picked up on on a, a interview that we did recently with um, with for a US podcast and one of the interviews interviewers kind of said you know as, as US um, individuals or athletes we're generally not the most confident and I remember kind of sitting listening go really wow you know that's yeah. not my perception because um, the ones they come across are so confident don't they yeah, so 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 I think there's also the there's our perspective as as the viewer there that maybe sometimes what we kind of see as you know, for example, if if we were to see an Irish athlete sort of coming out and looking really you know as as we might stereotypically imagine a U.S. athlete coming out, 
we might think of that as arrogance. We might think of that just very differently based on our culture. So, so, so I think I suppose you know broadly what I would kind of reflect on in that is is one there's there's the cultural show you know that we sort of have, but underneath that there's also generally what the the individual experiences and, and what they think and and the show may not necessarily reflect that all the time. Um, what, what I would sort of come back to when it comes to confidence is. You know, sometimes what we base our confidence on, and I think this is there's there is a you know kind of a I don't even know if this is a word, but there's a globality to that. If, if you know what I mean, it's it's kind of common regardless of culture that certain of the things that we base our confidence on are are the most important things when it comes to to feeling confident. Uh, whether we display that or not is something uh, quite different. Yeah, um, and maybe just another example note as well is um, I, I do a bit of work with one of Spain's top trail runners um, and he's just back from a training camp and for the first two weeks it was all just European athletes in the house where they were and then for the last week some American trail athletes came in these were all pro trail running athletes and he said that the atmosphere in the house totally changed that the Americans came in and they were talking about you know crushing and nailing every training session they were talking about striking fear into the opponents uh, on race day where he was just saying oh if i was to say that on my social media in spain for example and i'm sure it's same for an irish or a british athlete you you know you'd be just put back in your place and um, and it was just it was a remarkable change between the two but say in trail running for example in the biggest race of the year in UTMB, the Americans do go over to UTMB. They do come over very loud, but it's the Europeans that tend to get the results. So it's not always the people that come across the most confident and talk the biggest game that deep down maybe are the most confident, as you said. Yeah, and, and I suppose, again, it's, you know, the, the classic example I would kind of think of of that as well, you know, maybe a few, but but certainly going back to somebody like Muhammad Ali and, and some of the kind of the classic sort of statements that, you know, and, and interview quotes that he would come out with. Uh, and we talk a lot, actually a little bit about, about this in the book, because, you know, maybe just kind of a, a point that you sort of mentioned there, that one is the kind of things that we say overtly, and it's, you know, hammering every session, I'm going to do this X, Y, and Z in the competition or, or whatever it might be. Uh, but it's really, I suppose, what we say to ourselves, our, our, our own self-talk, what we say to ourselves and what we really believe, um, th- or sorry, what, what we say to ourselves that really influences what we believe and influences that self-confidence. Um, and I guess, you know, what I would suggest is that certainly if an athlete is saying those things overtly and that's truly what they think and that's truly what they believe, then, then great. You know, that's that's building their confidence and maybe that's basing their self-confidence on very stable, very controllable things like the quality of their training, et cetera. Um, if not, then I think, you know, it's it's really more something somebody says, but doesn't necessarily influence their confidence if that's not truly what what, what they say to themselves. Um, there was a fascinating interview with, uh, and I, I think it's, I can't pronounce his second name, but it was, uh, his first name is Giannis. He's a, a basketballer of, of um, Greek descent. Um, and it recently won the NBA finals. Uh, I'm sure somebody listening to this will, will, will maybe be able to fill in the gaps of his surname. But um, there was a recent interview with him before the, I think it was the sixth game in, in the NBA finals, before the fifth game, sorry, the, the sixth game was the final game where, where they won it. Uh, but it was a really great speech. And he was kind of talking about, you know, 
one of the things he said in his speech was how, in terms of his psychological preparation for, for basketball, he's really been focusing on just staying in the moment, staying in the here and now. And he was talking about, you know, if I go into a game and everything I say to myself is, this is what I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to score 60 points, I'm going to hit 15 rebounds, I'm going to do this and that. He said, you know, that's that's my pride talking. And, and really what he was kind of saying is I'm setting myself up by, for a fail if that's my focus. And so his his whole approach and what he was learning in terms of his whole uh, approach was focusing on the here and now, preparing as best he could, being in the moment during the game, taking a play-by-play, you know, breaking it down to those individual moments during a game. If he scores a three-pointer, fine, that's done. Next moment, next moment. Uh, and that was kind of his approach to it. And I, I think it was quite quite an interesting contrast to, again, th- that sort of self-talk that we might sometimes hear of, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to be the man, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. Maybe that's a nice segue into the next question I was going to ask, Noel, that, you know, there's a lot of great trail running races coming up over the next couple of weeks, Kauai Ultra, up in Antrim as well, Eco Trail, then the marathon road season is going to be starting. And would you recommend that we all plan for different eventualities on race day? I mean, plan for best case scenario, plan for reality scenario, plan for, oh, this is turning into a nightmare scenario. Is it worth putting the time and energy into going into so much detail or should we just, you know, enjoy the moment or or suffer the moment when it comes? How much should we how much effort should we put into planning like that? that that's a great question because because there seems to be a contrast there between you know planning for things that might happen and and staying in the moment. Um, yeah. so, so, so so yeah, it's a great question. Um, what I would say is this, you know, and again, this is based on some really good research for, for in terms of psychological preparation is that you know very very often sometimes, uh, and I may be being stereotypical here, but 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 I think it's something we we very often do is that when we have a race coming up, we very often imagine it being, you know, if we've prepared well, sorry, if we've trained well, we imagine it being this this sort of easy peasy thing. I'll sort of go through, everything will be fine. Or maybe hoping that it'll be that way, that that everything will go fine. Everything will go to plan. There'll be no major issues, et cetera. But as we know from, from any race, you know, you're going to encounter obstacles. You're going to encounter challenges. There go, there's going to be times where your negative inner voice gets a little bit louder and where it's going to feel really, really difficult. Um, and so w- w- what the advice there would be is to not to try to ignore or not try to suppress those feelings, but actually to plan for those moments. Um, so for example, you know, if you're talking about a marathon, let's say, or, or a trail race or whatever, it's very predictable that there will probably come a time in that race where you have what we call a psychological crisis, where you're doubting yourself, where you're thoughts are very negative you've maybe thoughts around stopping quitting giving up whatever it might be and so part of your preparation actually can be planning for those moments um and thinking okay well let's expect that to happen what am i going to say to myself when i do have those thoughts how am i going to work through those really challenging moments am i going to have some sort of strategy in my in my backpack if you like that will that i can pull out i mean a mental strategy that i can pull out and that i can use to help me through that moment and that might be the self talk statements that that we were just talking about earlier so planning for some of those eventualities planning for difficult moments obstacles that you might encounter um, but the key bit is planning 
how you will respond. And a nice way to kind of package this planning is, uh, is something called an if-then plan, creating something called an if-then plan. So if this happens, if I find myself in a really difficult moment, then this is what I'll say to myself, or this is how I'll work my way through it. The, the idea being that if you know what you're going to do and, you know, if everything goes great and the race brilliant, you know, you, you know, no problems and, and you, you finish and you're feeling great. But in the almost inevitable scenario where you do encounter some challenges, if you've got a plan in terms of how you're going to respond, then, then, then great. You know what you're going to do. And it maybe becomes a little bit less of a worry or something that you're going to have to kind of try to ignore a little bit less, if that makes sense, because you've got a plan and you know what you're going to do in that situation. Yeah, um, and the, Sorry, we're not going yet. No, I, I was going to say again, just there's that simple scenario. Again, a lot of good research to show and actually evidence from athletes as well to show that that is, that, you know, when we talk about mental preparation, that that is a huge part of mental preparation is, is preparing for those challenges and obstacles and having a plan in place for how we might overcome them and how we might deal with, with them. So I think the bottom line is absolutely do plan yeah. for those eventualities you know plan for if you're doing an ultra if, if you get a calf strain plan for how you're going to react whether it's slowing down a little bit whether it's taking on a bit of extra water and hopefully that will get you through it because if you don't have any plan in place and if you just wait for the moment to happen well then who knows what the, the reaction will be and um, one thing i'm fascinated to ask note as well through the research that you did for the book and you know your body of work over the last 20 years you know, I'm sure a lot of people are listening like myself. We've dreamt of being Olympic athletes. We've dreamt of being professional athletes. Have you found that the general happiness level, if you like, of these people is higher because they've reached the Olympic Games, because, they, because they've reached the pinnacle of their sport? Or has that brought on its own stresses as well? And that defined true happiness in, our, in, in life and in our sport it's about just enjoying the moment. It's about enjoying our espresso before we go out the door in the morning. It's about enjoying coming home to your partner, to your kids or whatever it might be. And that, that you need all those simple things as well as no matter what level in sport you're at to, to be happy. Or, or maybe if you are an elite sports star, you're happy out full stop. What, what, what have you found? Um, I suppose kind of a broad answer to, to that question. There's so many things then underneath that. But, but firstly, yeah. I suppose a broad answer is that actually when you look at the research more broadly outside some of the stuff that we've been talking about, that actually the, the mental health um, concerns and issues um, in athletes are very similar to, to non-athletes. Um, that actually when you look at incidents of um, anxiety, depression, etc., that between athletes and non-athletes, they're very, very similar. Um, and so what that would suggest is, you know, which, which maybe is kind of uh, an obvious point is that, you know, athletes have the same pressures, the same experiences uh, in their, you know, if, if you sort of think about it, being a professional athlete as, as effectively their job, you know, I mean, yeah. the same pressures and the same obstacles as many of us might experience, but, but maybe many others as well. You know, one thing that's really come out from these Olympics and, and this whole straight circumstances around COVID is, you know, a lot of athletes talking about missing their support network, you know, their family is at home, maybe some of their usual support crew like 
you know, I know some psychologists are delivering services online remotely rather than, you know, being on camp or, or within the athletic village at the Olympics. So, you know, a lot of those kind of um, issues, just simply traveling, being away from your family a long time and feeling lonely, that, that can be really, really challenging. I think on the flip side of Olympics as well, you know, we very often find that athletes who maybe achieve the ultimate, who maybe become Olympic champions, win a medal, reach a final, simply participate in the Olympics. That the post-Olympics, sometimes they can be a real downside from that because you've worked for so long to 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 qualify, to, to achieve your goal. Uh, that actually, you know, in the post-Olympic period, when when there's maybe no new goal to aim for, or even when athletes transition out of sport, that can be really, really challenging because it's been part of your identity for so long. There was one interview that, you know, after Carson Warholm um, broke the 400 meter hurdles world record, I thought it was such a fascinating interview. You know, he said, you know, we sort of, he said something along the lines of, I know we shouldn't, you know, we should have more to life outside of, of, of our sport, but this is all I do. This is me. This is everything that I am is, is, is my athletics, my running. Uh, what that showed is just for an athlete how, uh, and we don't have to think about Olympians, Olympians, you know, this could be, you know, somebody who plays GA for your local club. A huge part of our identity is our sport uh, and being defined as an athlete. Uh, and sometimes when athletes, you know, finish their Olympic journey, maybe transition out of sport, retire, even through injury, that that loss of identity can, uh, and change effectively in terms of who you are, can come with a huge mental health impact. Um, so, so it's probably just a long and winding answer to that question of whether athletes are generally happier, but, but I think there's a huge amount of considerations there in terms of, of mental health issues that might be unique to athletes uh, that we should consider, I think, as well. And, and, and again, we, we mentioned it earlier, but I think the conversation around mental health at these Olympics has been something that I will certainly take away as something that's been really important and a really important conversation from these Games. Kenny Egan is another um, Olympic athlete that comes to mind. And um, you might remember Kenny and um, what happened to him when he came back from Beijing. Yeah. Oh, he got the yeah. silver medal and he suffered a, a great deal as well. And it was only the last couple of years he's come out the other side and he's spoken very well about it. And it's great to see him doing so well now. Um, so a, a final question for today. No, you've been very good with your time and maybe just a, as, a, as a nice summary piece as well. No, you've had your skin in the game for the last 20 years because not only are you on the research side, but you're out running trail races and ultra races. You've got an incredible CV of, of marathons completed over 30. You're training for two, I know, at, at the moment now, the Antrim Coast to Coast and the Belfast Marathon. What maybe are the one or two things that you apply? Um, out of all the things that you've seen over the last 20 years, what do you find yourself doing on a week-to-week basis um, to help you from a psychological point of view? Is it, is it the, 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 the smiling more, which I've seen you, you've written about as well, to try and enjoy your training and literally physically smile to help get you through it? Is it the, no, you can do this? Is it the self-talk? What, what are the one or two things that you do yourself? Um, all, all of the above. <laughs> um, so, so many things. If, if I was to talk about what I'm specifically working on at the minute, um, ahead of those races that you mentioned, one is my self belief. So, so my my goal. Um, and I actually maybe chat a bit about the goals here as well. So, so my goal, my goal for the Belfast Marathon in October is to is to run a Boston qualifier. So, it's, it's very much a performance goal for that. Uh, and for me in the age group that I'm in. 
Uh, it's changed slightly this year, so so it's gone from a three ten to a three fifteen for me uh, to run that qualifier time. And uh, the last qualifying time for for Boston, which for my age group was a three ten, I missed out by I, I I beat that qualifying time around a three oh eight something. But in terms of other runners filling the quota, I ran out by I missed out by about fifty seconds or so. So a big part of my um, mental preparation for that race at the minute is is building my confidence and um, using very controllable sources to to build that confidence. So so what I'm one strategy that I'm doing at the minute is one big source of confidence is your preparation and your kind of it's called mastery achievements so your performance accomplishments and, and I'm kind of basing some of that on my training uh, and hitting markers in training so so for example about um, I think about maybe six weeks ago now I set a new 5k PB uh, on the same route that I would have ran two years ago I, I beat that PB by about 12 seconds so I kind of I use Strava I upload all my, my sessions on the Strava and, and where that's really useful is that you can sort of go back and look at similar sessions you would have done two three years ago and kind of say either okay I'm hitting the same markers that gives me confidence that you know I ran 308 in my marathon two years ago I can do that again and that gives me a qualifying time I may be running faster than I was back then you know it's, it's all about running or sorry it's all about building those beliefs uh, and, and basing my beliefs on very controllable things because sometimes when you're training you know you might base it on things like, you know, I feel I'm not running as well, but actually when you look at the stats, I am running as well. So it's important to kind of have that evidence that you just can't argue against. Maybe that's me coming from also a very scientific approach where, where I'm used to looking at figures and basing things on the evidence. But actually the research shows that having those kind of things to build confidence is really, really important. So so that's a big part of my mental game at the minute. Um, we, talk, we talked about the if-then planning and, and I'm, I'm absolutely preparing because... I know the last time I ran a 308 that there was parts of that race towards the end where my my self-talk wasn't as good as it could have been. Uh, I sort of gave in a little bit at times. You know, I kind of, that point when you hit about maybe mile 20, 21, 22 in a marathon where the, the voice for me becomes a negotiation. It's sort of the thing about, oh, this is really hard, but you can ease back a little bit and you'll still get your time. It's okay to ease back. And, you know, there's been a few races where I would thought I would have gone, yeah, that seems logical. That seems sensible, but, but it didn't work out as well as I kind of imagined in the moment. So I'm now preparing that. It's not that I'm going to suppress that voice when it comes. It's not that I'm going to think it's not going to come. I expect it to come, but I know what I'm going to say to myself in that moment. Uh, and I know the strategies that I'm going to use. And those strategies will be very simple things like, the stealth talk statements that we spoke about and also breaking it down. It's like, you know, this is tough now. Get to the next kilometer marker. Try to keep this pace. I get to the next kilometer marker. Can I hold that pace? One more kilometer, just one more kilometer, even though there's maybe five left in the race. It's just breaking it down that way. So self-talk is a big thing I'm working on now as well. Um, and again, even I mentioned that 5K PB it was using those strategies in that race to practice for that moment when it's going to really, really hurt in the marathon as well. Because again, that, yeah. that mental preparation is part of, of confidence too. And it's knowing that I've got a better mental game when the tough moments come, that that all helps the confidence that I can achieve my goal as well. And, and I suspect, Noel, you've seen over the years that people who are confident, who have worked on the psychological aspect of it, that it actually filters down into the physical as well. And that maybe they end up with less niggles, less physical injuries, less muscle tears, because they believe their body is more relaxed. It's not as tense. 
and they have everything under control so they're they're not pushing when they shouldn't and therefore from a physical point of view as well the psychological a game helps you get over the line physically as well i say probably does a massive influence on, on your on your on your muscle groups and um, coming coming from the brain uh, absolutely there's there's maybe two quick thoughts on that you know one is I think uh, during training, I think it's confidence and trust in your training. It's, it's knowing that, you know, I think sometimes when we don't have that confidence and trust in the process, we maybe, you know, try to do a little bit more. We maybe try to push a little bit harder when actually the session should be easier. And I think it's the accumulative effect of that sometimes that leads to those niggles and those injuries that you mentioned. Um, but secondly, I think, you know, as well, this, this comes from a, a theory called challenge and threat states in sport, which actually has shown, and, and there's an evidence base behind that, that when we feel more confident one of the sources of, you know, um, the difference between feeling in what's called a challenge state in, in competition where we feel more relaxed, more confident, uh, mentally we're maybe able to to, to make better decisions during the event um, versus a threat state where we might typically think of that as being really anxious, maybe more focused on avoiding the situation than approaching the situation. That The confidence is actually one of the things that makes the difference between being in a challenge state and a, a threat state. And actually on, on the point you said about the, the psychological uh, impact on, on physical performance, what that theory actually shows is that when we're in a threat state, um, we get less blood flow around the body. There's more resistance to blood flow around the body. Now think about that from an endurance athlete perspective. If you're less well able to deliver oxygen and nutrients to those muscles, you're, you're going to feel sluggish. You're not going to perform at your best. Uh, and actually what they've shown as well is a reduction in, in anaerobic power. So your ability to, to sprint, to, to, to you know, accelerate, all those kind of things can be reduced in a threat state as well. So, so yeah, so it's really interesting to show how you know, that integration between those simple strategies that we might use, how we might build our confidence, what we focus on is an important part of that can have such an impact on our, our performance physically as well. Yeah, well, well listen, no, some absolute gems of information there. The book is a great one. The Genius of Athletes. What would what world class competitors know that can change your life? You did it with your good friend, Scott Douglas, a great writer as well. And if anybody wants to find out more about Noel, he has his website too, noelbrick.com, where there's a list of Noel's media articles that he's written on, podcasts that he's been on, research papers that he's been involved with as well. So lots of really valuable information. Noel, it's been a real pleasure enjoy this weekend there's lots of great action still coming up over the last two or three days of the olympics and then with a bit of luck we might see you in antrim or even in belfast in a couple of weeks time thanks Owen. it's been a pleasure chat here really enjoy this so so thank you so much and uh yeah fingers crossed hopefully we'll we'll catch up uh in the next couple of months or so all the best and i'll take care take care thanks Owen. And that's a wrap for episode 32, everybody. Thanks a million to Noel for joining us on this week's podcast. What a fantastic guy Noel is. As you can see, so much in-depth knowledge there, so much experience. And we look forward, Noel, to reading the second book when it comes out, maybe sometime next year. A thank you, as always, to Rene for joining us earlier on in the show. And good luck to everybody with all their training and racing over the next couple of weeks. We've got the Moor Mountains on this weekend, Kerryway Ultra coming up soon, Eco Trail 
uh, Wicklow coming up and of course that big one that we mentioned earlier UTMB of course as well well done to everybody who took part in the trail running world championships trial race a couple of weeks ago as well but unfortunately news just came through this week that those championships where Ireland was going to send some very strong teams over to has been postponed until February 2022 so hopefully it is just a postponement and not a cancellation altogether good luck everybody with your training thank you to our Patreons as always if you do if you would like to support the show you can get us over on patreon.com the Trail Running Ireland podcast in the meantime everybody get your running gear on let's go